Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by former mayor of Toronto, David Miller. Before running for public office, he was a partner at the Toronto law firm Erden Burles, where he specialized in employment and immigration law, as well as shareholder rights. He became a Metro councillor in 1994, and in 1997, he was elected to the new city of Toronto Council, where he served two terms prior to becoming mayor. Following his time as mayor, Miller briefly returned to law before serving as president and CEO of the World Wildlife Fund Canada from 2013 to 2017, after which he began working as the director of international diplomacy at C40, Cities Climate Leadership Group. As you may know, there's an unexpected mayoral race here in Toronto, so we cover some of that ground, as well as issues affecting municipalities all across Canada, whether it's housing, transit, how we should see the relationship managed as between municipalities and provincial and federal governments, and how we should think about ambitious city building. David, thanks so much for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, we've not connected, although it's very interesting to me. We share somewhat similar paths to politics in, in some ways. In fact, more similar than than not in, in in that we not only were lawyers, but we actually both worked at Erden Burles before finding our way to politics. And I knew of you first because as the young guy going into politics who once worked at Erden Burles, the folks at Erden Burles said, yeah, we already had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm sure <laughs> and uh, how did you, I mean, I want to get into substantive issues around housing and transit and, and the role that Toronto should be playing and, and municipalities should be playing in contrast to provincial and federal governments. But as a starting point, why did you leave law at that particular time for for politics? And would you would you do it all over again? Oh, absolutely. In, in a second uh, was, you know, aside from uh, Getting married to Jill, the best decision I ever made was to to leave the practice of law and uh, run for office. My um, colleagues thought I was crazy. So I was a partner. I had a good practice. I uh, was pretty well thought of. And, you know, on Bay Street, when you're a partner in a law firm, you have a substantial income as well. And I left it all to run. Not because I want to, to run, which I'm sort of proud of. Um but I think it was a culmination of a long series of things, uh, really going back to when I was a little boy in England. You know, I lived in a little, before mum and I immigrated to Canada, I lived in a little tiny farming village uh, outside Cambridge. And the differences of class were really marked there. It was very clear. Uh, there was a test you took at 11. And if you passed, you could go to a high school that allowed you the possibility of going to university. And if you failed, you had to get a trade. And that decision was made at 11. And of course, who failed? It was the working class kids and the middle class kids because their parents knew how to prepare them and stuff passed and got a chance to go to uh, for an educational path to go to university. And there were other things too. The, the, my friends were uh, farmers, kids, you know, working families. And I spoke like them and I'd come home at night. My mom would correct my language and she'd say, if you talk like a farmer, that's all you'll ever be. And I, I would need to speak like the queen. That's, you know, what she'd, <laughs> which by the way, wasn't very popular coming to Canada in 1967 with a snotty English accent. But I digress. But I, guess, my, I was going to say my, my father-in-law, who's a farmer, 
gives a hell of a speech. So, in fact, is mm. one of the fun, fun, one of the funnier people I know in my life, all things considered. So, I, I I wish in politics sometimes I could speak more like Terry. Well, you know what? You're you're probably right. But this was my mom's perspective growing <laughs> up in England in the 20s and 30s, right? Um, and there's been some great Canadian politicians with backgrounds uh, as farmers, and I, I so I I agree with you completely. There's kind of a common sense wisdom, but. Anyway, you know, what I saw were differences of class from a very young boy, and it didn't seem right. So as I got older, I, you know, I explored things. I studied economics in university to see, you know, why is, why is society not just? And that's why I went into law. Now, of course, if you end up on Bay Street, um, you know, being a commercial litigation lawyer, it's not quite about that kind of justice. It's about a different kind of justice. But that's really what drove me. And I, I got involved in, so I had sort of cap, uh, small p, I guess, political instincts and interests, not partisan, but I was really interested in how do we make progressive change or make society more equitable and fair. And then in my practice, we represented the Toronto Islanders. And at the time, they were caught in this bizarre Kafka-esque thing where the city was prosecuting them if they didn't fix up their houses under relevant uh built property standards bylaws, and Metro, who was the landlord, would refuse to consent to the building permits so that people <laughs> people got prosecuted if they did respond to the city orders and fix their houses. It was bizarre, and I had hundreds of cases, and I thought there's something really wrong with the municipal government. So, you know, that's, that's sort of in the end what drove my political interest to local politics. It was a very practical sense of, you know, uh, injustice and strangeness and and uh, a government that didn't really listen to and work for people i uh i didn't stay on bay street as long as you did i i was barely an associate i, I, I worked for three years at a small firm in york and adelaide after i was a summer student and then for two summers and then an articling student at amb but i similarly i, I mean i I think it was a great job in many ways. The people that I worked with were great to work with, and I have nothing but good things to say about it in many respects, but I wasn't making the difference that I wanted to make. And when there was an open nomination in my home riding, that was very clearly the way I could make the biggest difference at the time. The Liberal Party was in third place, a frustrating conservative majority government, a, a, a deep cynicism to the government of the day. That I, My instinct at the time was, and I know this is common to politics at various points across parties, uh, and so there's frustration warranted all around with with this kind of partisanship. But there's a sense of communications driving policy, and that yes. parties, and then particularly Harper, was you know uniquely adept at this of coming up with specific ideas to serve elections instead of saying no, elections should serve ideas. What do we care for? What what do we stand for? And let's figure that out first. Um, anyway, so I got involved, and 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 I feel I feel like I made a big difference for the last seven and a half years. Um, you though were mayor of our city from 2003 to 2010. You were the 63rd mayor of Toronto, Wikipedia tells me. And we have a mayoral race right now, and it is splintered in all sorts of different directions. Why didn't you run? Because I, 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 my, my, you know, not great municipal political instinct was to say you would have had a pretty good shot. Well, one, one snappy answer to your question is I would have won. <laughs> no question in my mind and uh, you know i was honored to serve i i loved being mayor i did everything i possibly could to be the best mayor i could be i i'm not saying 
I was the best mayor anybody could be, but I was the best mayor I could be. I, I did everything I possibly could. Um, and when I left, I thought I might run federally. And I, I want to ask you about partisan politics, because one of the reasons I didn't was as a mayor, you, you, you lose your partisan edge because you really are the mayor of all the people. And um, so I didn't I didn't run. And, uh, you know, I'm really lucky. I have a very interesting work right now for C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. I'm helping make a difference on the world stage. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I did my public service. I was elected for 16 years. I did what I could. I don't think I'd bring anything new. So that's a personal reason. The second reason is I actually don't think it's right for somebody from the past to step forward at this moment for Toronto. I think this should be a moment when there's a debate about the kind of future people want. You know, do people want a future where we have city services that benefit everybody, that the city's relatively equal, that it's safe, that it has a thriving transit system, that housing is affordable, it's got great parks, great environmental standards, or do we want a low budget kind of city? You know, we voted for that the last 12 years and we're seeing the results. And I think that sh debate should be about the future. I mean, sure, it would have been possible for me to come back and say, I'll caretake for three years. You know, the mayor resigned uh, under a cloud. Um, you know, we need a steady hand. But I, I really don't think that's right. I think this is a moment for, for somebody new and fresh ideas and fresh energy and, and thinking about the the future. It's what actually in many ways was drawing me to provincial, more partisan politics, but provincial politics nonetheless, because I feel the same way about there's an opportunity with only eight seats at Queen's Park. There's a real opportunity to build something with a new direction. And it's challenging for all of the reasons that it, you're starting not quite from scratch, but you're starting from behind. But it's also exciting for the very same reasons, the opportunity to build something in a serious way. Can I, yeah. am I allowed to ask yeah. you a question on you your can, podcast? Yeah. Of course, of course. I'm interested in your experience in partisan politics and whether you feel constrained by it, because you do have to work together to build consensus <clears throat> through a group. But my, my sense is the advisors, particularly the communications advisors, still do drive things in a way that they don't in municipal politics you know they really are truly advisors and your names on the ballot you know my name is mayor it wasn't david miller new democratic party liberal party green party certainly wasn't conservative party but um it was david miller yeah and you know it was our house that was on the line for our campaign finance in security for the bank you know it was very personal and I, I've I often wondered what it's really like to, uh, to be part of the part a party and get your ideas actually implemented and deal with all the advisors and the communications pros and all of that. It can be frustrating for sure, uh, but there is a huge opportunity to push and pull the party into the kind of party, the best version of the party that it can be, and 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 pull it into the direction towards the direction that you want it to head, and so. I would say it takes very intentional, active effort to carve out space for oneself to be more independent minded, to push back at times, to not just go along to, you know, get along to go along and, and all that. And it's very easy. The whip 
Trump's office puts the white piece of paper in front of you in front of every vote to say this is the government position. There's a bill kit that sometimes articulately, sometimes not so articulately in two pages expresses the government's position in terms of its rationale. And it would be very easy just to vote how the white piece of paper tells you to vote. Uh, it It is more of a challenge and partly more of a challenge because, as you say, getting things done depends upon relationships and rocking the boat can sometimes upset those relationships. But I think over time, what I have found is that so long as you come prepared, so long as you've done your homework, so long as you are proactively working to build relationships inside and outside of caucus, and so long as you're overall a really positive political contributor, at the same time as when you do disagree, you make it about ideas and not personal, making it personal, I think, is fatal to the overall project, that you can carve out sufficient space. And it's not to say there isn't you know, individual instances can, that can be really tough to navigate. But overall, I have found that I've been able to carve out space where I get to say what I want to say. And the party apparatus generally leaves me alone. And they know that I'm, I'm not going to sink the ship. It's, it's interesting you're able to carve out your own space. I'm not certain everybody actually tries to do that. Yeah, I think it's very important to me, you know, an elected official, it's an amazing opportunity. You got the confidence of the people who voted for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're and representing their views. And it's amazing opportunity to shape public policy in the public interest. Oh, I've got, I, I say all the time, I've got fake credibility. People will listen. To, I have a platform to convince and persuade and to add ideas to the conversation simply because it says member of parliament after my name. And if it said lawyer after my name, if it said, you know, whatever profession I might have in future, I, I wouldn't have the same standing. And so there's this massive opportunity. But there's also this this conflict because when I am elected, I am elected as a liberal candidate. And there is an expectation from some that I'm going to be agreeable because they, you know, especially in that first election, did everyone vote for me? No, local candidates make a relatively small. So you have to be eyes wide open on the on the facts of the matter. Not everyone votes for me. They vote for the would-be prime minister in 2015, now the prime minister, they vote for the party, they vote for the platform, and local candidates make a 5 to 10%. If you're a very well-known candidate, you obviously break through that. I, I think I probably cut above 10% these days. But, but you know, I, I, it's not just me that is that is pushing people in the direction of voting for me. It's all, it's all, all of the above. And so definitely between 2015, 2019, where I was carving out that space and spending more time on the whip's couch than probably I cared for, the... I, I had constituents at times say, I, I didn't vote for this. I voted for the Liberal Party. I voted for the Prime Minister. I voted for the, you know, and I would get to say back, look, I I am always voting for the platform. I'm always voting for the ideas that you voted for. But there's a huge opportunity for disagreement otherwise. And you also voted for free votes. And you also voted for a party that embraced this kind of disagreement in this culture. And I'm there to make a difference and stand up for my values and the values of the constituency. And 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 you have to you know understand in an election that it's not just all about you and it's all these factors but when you get elected you're the trustee in the public interest right and and you've got to act in in keeping with that idea as opposed to just do what the party wants you to do well i first of all i'd call it real credibility not fake credibility i mean you actually <laughs> you learn at least i found i learned tremendous uh, a tremendous amount over 16 years in office but secondly people actually did vote for you. 
Yes, yes, yes. Right. Especially, right. especially later on. <laughs> but, but yes, yes, it is my well, name. It's on your the name on the ballot. It is my name on the ballot. Yes. No, I, I think I think you do have to carry. I think which is why the look. I don't agree with every promise that we put in a platform, but I have committed to my constituents, Canadians, and my commitment to the party is. I will vote for the promises we make to Canadians as a party, and I'm not involved. Uh, you know, there are promises in, in platforms subsequent to 2015 that I had a serious role in making sure we're in that platform, but I'm not responsible for all of the promises, and I don't agree exactly with all of the promises. Some, I think, are, you know, the recent promise or, or what we just delivered on a $40,000 combination of RRSP and TFSA for first-time homebuyers. Probably not how I would have articulated an answer to the housing crisis, all things considered. I don't think it's going to help. It's going to juice the demand side in probably a more unhelpful way than helpful. But I'm going to vote for that every single time. We promised it to, to Canadians, and that's in a platform, and that's my commitment. So you, there, there's an easy navigation on that side because there's a clear, bright line. And then it gets harder where the government takes a strong position on, on you know, electoral reform is pretty tough because when that promise was broken, it was something we promised. <laughs> so I voted for electoral reform in the House, but it was also, I know, I know challenging because it was a bit more embarrassing to the government. There have been other times, especially through more scandal eras of whether it's SNC or, or, or situations like that where I've been more vocal, that can be really tough to navigate because you are, you know, the, uh, there is a perception that you're even, you know, you're exacerbating the challenge for the party. But in other cases, it's a lot easier on, uh, drug policy, for example, I've been able to, you know, pull the party along in a serious way. We we passed legislation in the fall that I helped draft, and I've really pulled the party into a direction I think that they didn't have in 2015. And so, you know, there's a push and pull to it, and and you win some, you lose some. But there's some challenge to it, and then there's other. There's a huge opportunity to make a difference, as you said, and and by by being your own voice and being your own person, you make a bigger difference. Well, now I, you know, I'm glad to hear that because I think the the voice of a member of parliament can be really strong used properly oh or, yeah unquestionably or it can yeah. be almost non-existent <laughs> the job is what you make it there's there is a, a limited job description insofar as you've got committee work you've got certain times to be in the house for house duty you've got to vote on a particular schedule but you can take issues on and and, and deliver I, some people say pick one issue i actually don't agree with that advice you can you can't pick an unlimited number of issues but you can pick more than one. And, and I've found, you know, five to 10 issues that I've been able to drive home in a serious way over the course of the last seven and a half years. And, and you don't have to pick one, but you do have to be very focused and persistent with the with the issues that you that you that you select to, to push forward on. Um, yeah, I, I, you can keep asking me questions, but I <laughs> and you have to do your homework. Right? Yeah, you said you that earlier. I think that's it's very powerful if you actually know what you're talking about, if you built a constituency. Yeah, because and, there are people, if they, even if they don't agree with you, they trust. And trust is everything. Municipally, it's an interesting point because municipally, you have to build a coalition around every vote. And the mayor has a huge amount of influence, obviously, because you got the power to appoint people to things. And, you know, nobody wants the mayor going in their ward and, and, you know, suggesting that uh, the councillor isn't the right person to represent the ward or something like that. Um, but ultimately, it, because because it's not party politics and you have to build a coalition of often a different coalition around different topics, um, trust is incredibly important. 
because nobody signs a legal document with a big red seal saying you've got my vote, you know, on, for example, we um, created a program to lower the rates of commercial property taxes because office buildings and commercial buildings in Scarborough and Etobicoke uh, were very difficult to fill with jobs because uh, the taxes immediately across the border in Pickering and, and York and Mississauga were vastly lower for the same kind of buildings. The coalition that supported that measure was somewhat different, as you could imagine, than the coalition that uh, supported phasing out the uh, cosmetic use of pesticides, which is sure. a public health issue. So, you know, being mayor, there's an art to getting both those coalitions and and getting what's the right thing for Torontonians in that sort of sweet spot where most people agree, but from my case, sort of more on the left side of the spectrum, but still where most people could agree. And to do that at council requires absolute trust and it's on a handshake. And you learn pretty quickly, sometimes not even a handshake, who you can trust and who you, you can't. Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. And I actually got burned early on. I had an animal welfare bill, and it it wasn't the sky wasn't going to fall. It wasn't going to affect hunting. It wasn't going to get. It wasn't affecting farming. In fact, the Canadian Federation of Agriculture supported it when it was introduced by Irwin Kotler. Uh, but because I was introducing it from Toronto, it had been many years since it had been introduced. I, I went to a conservative colleague who was more connected to farming. I went to a conservative colleague who was more connected to hunting. And I said, I'm going to introduce this. Here's the history of it. If there are any changes you want to make, let me know. I want to work together with you. But I, did, I, was, I was new. I didn't have relationships. And instead, they went to their stakeholders and whipped up a misinformation campaign. And I got the whole thing got absolutely torqued. And I didn't have I didn't have trust. I, 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 didn't, I hadn't built a coalition. I, I was an unknown entity and I didn't have relationships. And so since that time, I've gotten a lot better at it. And if I introduce a similar bill, I would I wouldn't go through the same experience today because I would know that I just went through Pandemic Prevention Preparedness Act. I introduced and the conservatives were opposed to it. Block were opposed to it for specific reasons. The NDP initially were opposed to it, and then I worked out a deal, and it was based on relationships that I got with Don Davies and Laurel Collins and Taylor Backratch and Charlie Angus and others that there was a trust there, especially with Don. And I said, look, like just get it to committee, and, and we'll work to to make it how you like it. But let, let's let's work together on it. And if you don't have those relationships and that trust, then and building coalitions inside of your own caucus is very important to build coalitions to shape your, the agenda, but also coalitions across the aisle. Um, it's, it's not dissimilar from the backbench because I don't have the same power that a government minister would have to really get the, you know, the liberal members on board. Um, and so you, you have to build coalitions to add issues to the agenda. So there, there is a similarity there operating from the backbench. Yeah. And I, I think it's critically important and, you know, I, there are people who almost never had the same vote as Doug Holliday's one from Etobicoke, for example. He's very hard right. He's not kind of Harper Oliver-esque, you know, let's do anything no matter how evil to gain power. You know, let's let's stereotype Muslims and whip up hate against them deliberately to to gain power, which Harper and, and Oliver did with that snitch line, which I thought was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen in Canadian politics. Doug Holliday is a hard principled fiscal conservative, uh, but he promised me his support on a couple of things. And including, um, there was a motion to uh, take away the right to strike from TTC workers, which I didn't agree with. And he didn't agree with because he thought when you arbitrate labor, 
settlements, it's much more expensive. So he came at it from a completely different perspective. But he honored his work. I would, you know, I could go to the bank on Doug Holiday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other yeah. people, that, in, including yeah. lefties, less so. Yeah, but in the end, that's all you got, right? And and, uh, um, and if you're going to ask people to work together with you, your word is what you got. And I, and I think in politics, there's a an old Kurt Vonnegut line: "We are who we pretend to be, so be careful who one pretends to be." And in politics, it's doubly true. And 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 I and I've always taken that to heart: of you've got to leave this job at some point and look back and. Did you do what you set out to do on the one hand, but are you leaving with your with a reputation that you can look back and say what you've actually articulated in, in some ways? If, if I can look back and say, I did the best job I was capable of doing. I mean, what more do you want than that? Yeah. And when you leave, don't go back. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good lesson, too. <laughs> so. So, OK, so issues wise, you talk about sort of what's uh, was best for people in Toronto. And and, and frankly, I, I've been in North Bay and housing is doubled there, too. And in St. Thomas, housing is a challenge. And regardless of where I am traveling across the province, common issues come up around housing affordability and municipalities are uniquely uniquely suited to address these challenges in some ways the affordability task force which ford hasn't listened to but the affordability task force says add density encourage municipalities and add density and restrictive zoning practices um not encourage sprawl which is what ford's doing unfortunately but uh, having the experience you you had over seven years in Toronto and now seeing the challenges in housing that we all see and young people acutely feel, but it's a, you know, it's a fairness challenge. It's a productivity challenge. You run down the list. What do you think the relationship ought to be as between the city cities and the province where, you know, you, you want cities to have autonomy on the one hand, but you also want and to end restrictive zoning practices and a, and a firmer hand from the province makes sense in that regard, probably. I, yeah, I probably disagree a little bit there. I, you know, Toronto's three million people. You know, how big's Prince Edward Island? Yeah. How big's Nova Scotia? Yeah. How big's New Brunswick? And yeah. nobody says the people of New Brunswick don't have the right to elect the government they want. Some other government should come in and tell that government what to do. I, mean, I, I think Toronto, Torontonians should have the democratic right to elect their government and should make decisions on their behalf. And I think part of my perspective is because I was a city councilor for three terms before I became mayor. Yeah, it it is. It's a bit of a different relationship with the people you represent than even an MP or an MPP, just because of the nature of the issues and because legally you have to consult. So I start from that perspective, uh, that people have a right to a say. They don't have a right to a veto, but they have a right to a say. So how would, you know, if I were mayor right now, how would I address the housing crisis in Toronto? Well, the first thing to start with is uh, transit lines, where there is rapid transit. And by that, I include streetcars um, or will be rapid transit. And... Uh, I think essentially what you need to do along those lines, like Eglinton and Finch, for example, is zone something as of right, eight to 12 stories, mid-rise all along there. And I haven't done the calculation, uh, but it's hundreds of thousands of units, hundreds of thousands. And if you have some decent rules 
about how to make those affordable and reasonable sizes and uh, all that sort of stuff, environmental standards, you could really facilitate private sector housing that way. One of the challenges to mid-rise is because it's very expensive to build relative to a higher rise. So developers always want to build higher. But if you take a lot of the uh, process out of the way and make it as of right, you've made a huge step forward. So that's a really critical plank. And in Toronto's case, I think the calculation would show there's enough units created simply out of that um, uh, to not need uh, to to pave over the green belt period. Second thing you got to do is deal with deeply affordable housing. And to do that, you need to use government land and a, and a government entity or a government-supported entity like co-ops needs to facilitate the building of that housing. Um, so Toronto could do it. They're the biggest landlord in Canada. Uh, you could facilitate co-ops. Uh, all sorts of things could be done there using public land. Um, and that's really important because there is a significant part of the rental market that we've we've had experiments in essence over the last 35 years. And it's very clear that without rent control, this idea that the private sector will build so much that rents will fall, it just doesn't happen. So who who and who is going to be able to afford the very high rents is a is a certain sector of society and the uh, rent, middle to lower rents uh, need, in some way or other, very direct government support. Build it on public land that takes a significant cost out. The final part to that is a lot of the housing that's actually affordable in Toronto was originally built with federal funding through the CMHC or direct federal support to co-ops. And I'm a great believer in co-ops. I think they're a huge part of the solution. And um, those programs haven't really been renewed since the 90s. And I think there's a role there. So on the big picture, uh, you know, the province has a role to use provincial land and funding. Past that, it needs to, to, you know, it's okay for it to set some rules that are province-wide, but it shouldn't be micromanaging and meddling in Toronto. Can, can I can I can I ask on that front? Because uh, I agree on the meddling side in terms of you don't want very specific meddling where we which we have seen with respect to the elections. We have seen with respect to Doug Ford seems very preoccupied with Toronto. Actually, all things considered, strange. Uh, um, yeah, the, the 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 never was mayor, but but wishing he had been mayor, but. Uh, when I think of the the three tranches, I think you've you're adding market supply and density, and so you know governments have to get out of the way in, in the sense of restricted zoning. You're mentioning around transit lines. One could extend that thought further to some extent, I think. But en any restrictive zoning to add density, especially around transit, to get the government back in the game on on, on public and social housing. You're mentioning co-ops, and and Adam Vancouver is a colleague of mine who will tell a very powerful story about growing up in co-op housing and the need to invest in co-op housing. And the federal government is starting at least to to reinvest in co-op housing in a significant way. And then three, at a high level, to treat housing as a home first and an investment second as we design, whether it's tax rules or other rules. Uh, on the first point, though, take that class story that you told that motivated you to get involved in politics. And 
you look at some neighborhoods and and preserving the the character of the neighborhood means single family homes to some people and keeping out a level of density that would that would allow new younger diverse people to come into those communities uh, and certainly different income strata to come into those communities and so you look at what California, for example, is doing, which is a pretty extreme version of, of, of this idea, but you would have your housing targets and say the one we enshrine 1.5 million over 10 years in planning guidance in some way, but you would require municipalities to set their own targets. And if they were not to hit those targets because of rules like neighborhood character, then another set of rules might come into play. Now, now, you know, California has a pretty aggressive builders remedy, which says like, you know, builders can go in and, and, you know, the previous rules do not apply. You could have some different version to say these pro forma bylaws would apply that allow for, you know, gentle density. Do you, do you think it is a, a hands off municipalities because they, they're, they're their own local democracies and it is what it is and good decision for better and worse on housing? Uh, or there is a role to be a bit more aggressive at the provincial level to say, you know, you're free to add density as you as you're as you want. But if you're not adding density at all, and you're and you're maintaining that idea of neighborhood characters to keep people out, that we are going to be a bit more forceful as, as the conversation goes. Well, first of all, I support and we brought in measures while I was in office, certainly as mayor and fought for them while I was councillor uh, to what you're calling general density to support um, uh, things like uh, having second suites as of right, which was hugely controversial at the time. Yeah, of course. And I support the kind of density that surrounds our house, and which is the kind of density that's in the annex, um, which is the kind of density that's in a lot of parts of Toronto where you can have three or four apartments where you can have the there's a a Toronto style of three story walk ups that's all over the place in lots of neighborhoods with you know three or four apartments in a building. I support that. I support that all over Scarborough and Etobicoke in the areas where the conservative, by the way, uh, councillors have really fought against it. Um, because there's some reluctance on behalf of the residents, to be honest. I support yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I support a rooming house bylaw that makes rooming houses legal, subject to certain conditions, as of right around the city. And we did that in Parkdale when I was a city councillor, and it was massively controversial. But I think ultimately that's the business of the city of Toronto through its government that the three million people of the city elect, and. Uh, Probably I would support that kind of philosophy in any decent-sized city in Ontario. haven't really thought it through, certainly Hamilton and Ottawa. Um, I don't think that's uh, the business of the province to impose bylaws or anything else. And, you know, by the way, it doesn't always work. The annex has very broad zoning. You know, you can take any house there and cut it into a whole bunch of apartments. And what's happened in the annex? The exact opposite. People are buying what are in effect rooming houses and deconverting them to single family homes. Yeah. So it's it's only one solution. And I, I, I think it's important to have that perspective. Can I just go back to the transit thing? Yeah. The reason that's important 
is if you want the city to work in other levels, socially and environmentally, not just from a housing affordability perspective, you need density around transit. That's what makes a city work. So you have to think of both policies at the same time if you're really going to succeed, in my view. And I think that's pretty well established. What's wild in, in my riding, I just did a CBC interview the other day standing in front of 8 Dawes Road in my riding. It's just south of a local legion, and there's going to be development at that legion too. But on this site, which is an empty site, it's a Metrolinx, it was a Metrolinx-owned site. Metrolinx sells the site to a private developer with zero zero percent affordability in terms of any uh, conditional obligation. And the federal government, if if I've been in conversations with the minister's office around Canada lands and Downsview, and when that crown corporation at the federal level is selling land, there's a minimum percentage of affordability required on the sale of 20%. And the government says, and we're committed to exploring options to add even an even larger percentage. When the city of Toronto makes public lands available, they are similarly committed to a significant percentage of affordability. It is shocking, especially as you are, you are rightly articulating the need to add density in and around existing transit corridors, that you have land, publicly owned land, being sold off that exists near a transit corridor. And not only are we selling it off without any consideration whatsoever as to the value that we would get out of it, other than just the pure monetary value, but we aren't even, it, this shouldn't be complicated. Like it, this is what other levels of government are doing. And the province just seems to wash their hands of it and say, not our problem. Affordability isn't a concern. So perhaps that's evidence of my view that we shouldn't be letting the province set the rules <laughs> for development in Toronto. Because it yeah. does this kind of stuff again and again and again. It builds transit lines where the money is not best used. It, it, it really, in, in my view, history doesn't justify believing that the province is this benign intellectual force that makes the system work properly uh, it's just not true and on that point it's an interesting one because you know uh, yes the city policies and the federal policies are much better than what the province did but i do think we need to be even more aggressive and right. this we didn't do when i was in office we had the kind of targets you're talking about but i think we should actually on public land say we're going to develop it ourselves we'll put out an rfq for builders but we're going to develop ourselves. We're going to keep it in public ownership, or uh, it'll be uh, owned uh, uh, through a co-op kind of system, and, and force build affordable rental. Because what happens with those targets is you build quite small units to the low end of the market, and yes, they're technically affordable for people to buy. But it, it's rare that those targets result in truly deeply affordable rental. And I think we need to add a layer to the, the good intentions and the good policies of Ottawa and Toronto that really speaks to using the land and keeping it in public hands. I think that's right. In addition, I, I would say ensuring there's affordability in perpetuity because we see deals done for 10 where the different levels of government secure 10 years of affordability which i laugh at or 50 years of affordability which is obviously much better than 10 but still i'm going to see units that are then going back into a level of unaffordability in my in my lifetime that doesn't make any sense at all to me and so delivering on 
affordability in perpetuity it has to be the the prior overriding priority. Can, can I ask on the transit file though, because we can talk about the role Metrolinx has in in building transit and the role Metrolinx has in this case when they sell off land, delivering affordability on the housing side around transit. There is a we've had this conversation as a four on six caucus. I've spoken about this issue with the I've been I've corresponded with the Minister of Industry to, about access to cell phone service on on the TTC. Some municipal candidates are really, I would say, weaponizing this issue of safety in a serious way and and riding it hard in a tough on crime way. There are worries, though, from, you know, I hear from constituents around violence on the TTC and, and, and the stories that are covered there and and the the cuts we've seen to the TTC service. There's a worry that service gets worse, fewer people ride it, and, and, and the spiral, and, and, and away we go on the spiral. When you look at transit and the need to deliver high quality not just affordability, we can talk about affordability too, but really high quality service is what drives ridership based on all the experts I've ever spoken to. And so in delivering that high quality service, partly it is about safety, which gets into a conversation to some extent about policing at least, and, and then a, a bigger conversation around social supports. You're not running for mayor, but this is on the ballot in, in, on, for many candidates and, and, and many voters, I would add. How would you articulate an answer to the challenges we've seen on the TTC? I'm very worried about safety on the TTC. Um, you know, I'm, our house is right across the street from Hyde Park Subway. So in the past six months, there's been a murder at Hyde Park Subway and a murder at Keel, which is shocking. It's just absolutely shocking to to residents and it makes people i think particularly but not exclusively women uh, really worry about their safety um so you know i'm concerned and i i'm concerned in the bigger picture uh in addition to ensuring the ttc safe that post covid because there's changes to people working from home and less commuting that with the cuts the ttc is on a downward spiral and that exacerbates the safety issues because you're waiting for a bus longer you're waiting for a subway longer and of course you know policing is a part of this but the city increased policing tremendously through very expensive overtime payments and it's very evident that it it didn't do anything to prevent these um tragedies so you know what needs to be done well i think item one uh ottawa and queens park as part of covid relief need to support public transit not just in toronto in um, ottawa hamilton in the case of canada all, all the big cities uh to help rebuild ridership and we we need service at really good levels so that uh, people will be safe and they'll know the system's there for them, so they'll choose to live a lifestyle that takes transit um, rather than driving if they have a choice. And by the way, in Toronto, if people live near a streetcar or a subway, they tend to take it. If they have to transfer buses more than once, they tend to drive if they have a choice. 
So that's the first thing. You've got to rebuild transit service because if the service isn't there, people aren't going to take it. Secondly, you need eyes on the street. And part of rebuilding the transit service means you've got to have TTC employees visible for people. That's really important. The third thing is uh, the police should be paying more attention to, to TTC safety, but we've got a lot of police officers. They have a massive budget. Um, the police chief needs to assign more of them to making sure that people feel safe because it's that visibility that makes them feel safe. In order for people to be safe, we have to think about the really big picture. And by the way, the TTC isn't the only safety concern, traffic fatalities, uh, you know, car pedestrian, car cycling, all sorts of, there's all sorts of safety issues in Toronto, the ambulance service working properly, fire. Uh, but from the perspective, the perspective of the two incidents that I cited, um, it's pretty clear that our mental health services, the Streets to Homes program, which was highly successful and has been uh, starved of resources, which gets people a home and provides them the social service supports they need in order to stay there. And drug treatment, it's, it, I, I don't know if you have any constituents that, or friends that have tried to access drug treatment in Ontario. You know, it is virtually impossible to do it on a timely basis. So yeah, we need yeah. massively increase those social supports, which isn't just the city, but the city has a role. And I think if I were running uh, in a much more succinct way, um, that's what I'd be saying. I have been very vocal at the federal level around treating drug use as a health issue in the context of the opioid crisis in particular. And, and you're bang on. It is about getting the criminal law out of the way so we can take a health focused approach for people who use drugs and suffering from mental health and addictions issues. But you need one harm reduction services to ensure that people's lives are saved before they're ready to seek treatment. And then a wide availability of on-demand treatment for when people are ready. And if you don't catch people when they're ready, they don't get the help they need. We're not going to save them the way that we ought to save them. And that on-demand treatment isn't available in the way that it ought to be in urban areas. And even worse, I would say, in northern and, and more rural Ontario. Absolutely. You talked about the city being starved of resources. And you could probably use that same line in, in a number of different contexts for the city of Toronto and in other municipalities. The funding relationship tends to be, now it was, it was unique in COVID, but the funding relationship tends to be capital support from the federal government, operational support from, you know, the, in the case of transit from the fare box, plus from the province. Do you think we ought to be revisiting these conversations and, and these structures? I mean, I, I I was sympathetic. I was frustrated in some ways, but I was also sympathetic to the federal government when they didn't provide another round of emergency cash to the city of Toronto. Because one, we had boosted the bottom lines of provinces all across this country throughout the pandemic. The province of Ontario is flush in, in their recent budget. We, we were not. And... So the obligation really, I think, does lie with the province in a serious way for making the city whole. Uh, on the other hand, it, as we exit, you know, that unique time period, it it does make a certain degree of sense to get back to that order of operations, unless we're rewriting that order of operations, which is, I've, I've seen some of your commentary to say that the feds should be more involved in operational expenses. 
So just before I answer that, I think it's a great question. And I, if I were the prime minister, I'd be very frustrated that the provinces have all this federal money and yes. are sitting on it. And I would hope I would have been had my elbows up a bit more than he seemed to have in forcing them to use it. But I just want to go back. Can I just go really quickly back to the safety thing? Yes, yeah, for sure. There's a small detail of policy that highly matters here, particularly because there's this campaign about bail. Yeah. Which frightens me. If, you know, if you're familiar with the system, people don't get bail all the time for relatively minor crimes. And it extends, essentially is extorting them to plead guilty. It's, it's really quite terrible. And it's just, the, at its heart, this campaign is false in suggesting that all these crimes are committed by people on bail. But there are some issues in the system, and it's exemplified by this the tragedy that happened at Kiel. The young man that's charged with that murder had been in jail for various things and ordered to get treatment. And the system did nothing to get him treatment and then discharged him to the street. Because that's what the system does today. And that's something that really needs to be fixed. We need the on-demand drug treatment and people in jail need to be able to access it. Yeah, And people can't, people, particularly somebody with his profile who said himself, I've got an addiction, I want help, can't just be released to the street. Yeah. I mean, it, it's madness. And that's what needs to be fixed, in my view, not the bail system. So Ottawa, Queens Park, the city, first of all, uh, I don't use the word levels of government. I use orders because I think they all have a separate legitimacy, not a hierarchy. Um, secondly, um, I think it's a fair argument to make that it's not Ottawa's role to fund operational services in cities. The big challenge, uh, although coming out of COVID, I would push back and say, at a minimum, Ottawa should have said to the provinces, you've got this COVID relief, a big chunk has to go to cities. And I, and, I, and, and I would add, though, the city could have done a better job. So when, when we were presented with an ask as a caucus, everything in the kitchen sink was thrown in there. Instead of focusing on transit as an example, which is unique in terms of the way that it was bleeding money and, and lower ridership because of the pandemic, uniquely large in Toronto versus other municipalities all across this country. And it's entirely unfair to come and ask the, the, the federal government and bail us out from all of these other lost revenue items when other cities in other provinces and, and all across Ontario aren't coming hat in hand with the same ask. And so they, 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 they really did not do themselves any favors, I, I, I don't think, by not really very narrowly focusing in on transit in the shelter system. So I fully agree with you, um, and I would be extremely critical of Mayor Tory here. His view of intergovernmental relations was he would have a private secret meeting with Doug Ford. That's really not how it works. And what we did very successfully in, in my time as mayor, first of all, we had an excellent intergovernmental team in the city manager's office. And that's really important. It's a bit nerdy and technical, but it really matters that you have great civil service advice. And what we did was build a coalition of cities uh, around the GTA, within Ontario, and nationally. And we focused on two asks. 
transit and housing. And council, almost every meeting, a motion would come up. We want Ottawa to help with this or the province to help with this. And I said to council, look, if they're the right motions, let's pass them, but refer everything to my office. So there's one place that keeps all the intergovernmental affairs stuff. And let's fight for the big picture. Because if we succeed in that, financially, it helps the city. And maybe the city can deal with some of the smaller things. Couldn't agree with you more. The city should have come and said, the pandemic has uniquely affected our ability uh, to deal with transit. We need a transition from the end of the pandemic over two years. And we think the federal government has a role here because, you know, the GTA is uh, the biggest part of Canada's economy by far, far more important than uh, um, you know, the oil industry in Alberta, and and it, there's a federal uh, benefit from, from Toronto succeeding, uh, and I think they made a huge mistake. And I think they've made that mistake in negotiations with the province as well over the last 12 years, and they've, the, the province has run circles around the city. And if you have a coalition of mayors across Canada or a coalition of mayors across Ontario, it's often irresistible. It, but you need to pick a couple of issues. And for me, it's housing and transit because those are huge money. And, you know, as you know, but the listeners to the podcast might not, uh, the city gets about six, six and a half nowadays cents of every tax dollar that people or businesses pay. And the rest is split between the province and Ottawa. So when you are doing big things like transit and, and housing, um, you really need some of the income and sales tax revenues to flow back to the city from where it came in the first place. So I, I fully agree. They, they made a mistake. But, you know, at this moment, there does need to be, I think, a, a reinvigorated, and I'm glad to hear that, that some of this work's being done, uh, approach through the CMHC and through co-ops to housing. And there really does. The province needs to support TTC operating funding. That was the norm under the Conservative government of Bill Davis. It's disappeared, and it would benefit Ottawa, Toronto, and Hamilton uh, quite significantly. When you talk about the city doing big things and the sense of imagination required to do big things, and yet the city's just struggling to catch up to where it, the de minimis, de minimis of where it needs to be, and yet... When we, when we, and I, it's in part a climate question because your work with seeing work internationally. If we were to imagine doing big things in this city, uh, what would it look like? And and I worry that a lack of imagination hampers. You, you look at what's happening with Ontario Place right now, and and the move of the Science Center, and where we where we even have a, an opportunity to have some imagination. It is hampered by. A conversation not about what could it be but spa or no spa or moving ontario uh the science center uh, as an example I, I know there are many reasons to criticize it for an underserved community in north york and you know i used to take my kid every friday to the science center before he was in school but there are real reasons to criticize around the fact that it is an underserved community is now going to be even even less well served but the core question there is What's better for kids? Are we going to get more kids or fewer kids accessing the science center? And, and and I haven't seen the province even speak to that. So zero imagination, it seems to me, from 
how do we best serve a future generation in our city? And it's an afterthought from, 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 from everything I see. But when you think of doing big things and you could take it, you know, you can dunk on Ontario place all you like, but you could also, uh, you know, from a climate perspective, how do we, what are those big things that you want to see the city do? And what, how do we go about addressing those big things when, when it seems like we can't even do the basics? Well, first of all, the point you're making kind of reinforces my point about the province. I, I actually think the province is structurally incompetent as, as far as it comes to its relations with Toronto. And the Ford government is the worst by far, but, um, you know, it, it not entirely sure. Uh, it, it isn't a long-term problem. The province essentially thinking it knows better, and it doesn't. And this is a good example. I think it's just tragic. I mean, the... You know, the Science Center is an example of thinking big, a famous architect, a beautiful site. It was way ahead of its game. And, you know, Toronto, when uh, Peter Ustahoff, was it Peter Ustahoff who said Toronto's New York run by the Swiss? Don't know. I think so. Some actor. Toronto's New York run by the Swiss. We can't say that now. You know, the all sorts of things are going wrong. And I, I think the vision has to start with, what are Toronto's strengths? Well, one of our strengths is we welcome people from around the world who bring their energy, their passion, their smarts, their commitment. They come here, like my mom did, although we came to Ottawa, for a chance for their children. And, um, you know, so I think the big things we should be thinking about are about how do we uh, ensure that Toronto is a place where everyone can really have a chance. and build the kinds of things that make that true, like the Science Center was, because it was accessible to everybody. So to me, that means you've got to have a rapid transit network across the city, not a few lines, few subway lines, a network across the city that you densify around and build great public spaces like parks and places um, so that people from all walks of life can really participate in the life of the city. They can do that from an employment perspective. If they can get around by relatively inexpensive transit opposed to cars, which are really expensive, they can enjoy the environment more because the air is going to be cleaner. And, and we have to think about not just how do you build more housing, but how do you build more great parks? How do you build more places like the Science Centre and Ontario Place um, which, you know, in, in Ontario place is case is a free public amenity. Sure. You can spend money there, but you can also go and enjoy it for free. Uh, or the Toronto Island. You know, when I ran, the reason the Island airport issue resonated with people all over the city is because people from all over the city come there in the summer for family picnics for free, uh, or take their kids to Centerville. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, if that's where we start in from uh, as a concept from a city, it's inclusive. It includes everybody. It includes businesses. And people want to build great parks and public spaces. And they want to live in a city that's easy to get around via great transit. And you can walk and cycle. And I, th I think that kind of vision to people is inspiring. And it's also realistic. It's not saying we're going to bring you the moon. It's saying we're going to take the potential of Toronto and really make it what it can be. My my last question is, uh, are there, you mentioned rap, a rapid transit network, you mentioned uh, density and 
those both go a long way to ensuring that the world's great cities are fixing the climate crisis. Are there other core ideas, whether at the provincial level, federal level, or at at the municipal level that you would look to and say, I wish I saw stronger climate action in this particular way because we see other world cities doing more to, to address the climate crisis? The key to the climate crisis is we have to have global emissions by 2030 if we're going to stay on a trajectory that science shows us can save the planet. Well, I mean, the planet will exist, but uh, save significant adverse consequences. What's the part that we can play over the next six years, seven years? First of all, buildings. So Toronto, Toronto's weakness is we do great things, but we do pilots. We need to make what we can do well at scale. And there's one program called Tower Renewal, which is about doing energy retrofits on all the 60s, 1960s and 70s apartment buildings that were built with federal funding through the CMHC. It alone could lower greenhouse gases in Toronto by 5%. And those buildings are all over Canada. And it pays for itself over time, slowly, not as fast as the private sector would want, but in uh, for uh, somebody like a government who has a long-run vision, uh, this could be financed all across Canada by the CMHC, and it would be paid back over time. So you replenish the money, so we're not out of pocket. And by the way, Toronto's done pretty well historically. Starting in 2007, together with the closing of um, the Lakeview coal-fired plant, we're now about 30, 33% as a geographic place below 1990 emissions, but we've got to get over 50. So buildings, way more transit, uh, bring in density in, in the way I was describing, mm -hmm. that allows people not to have to drive. Um, and then the other thing, you know, Montreal, essentially uh, new buildings in Montreal won't be allowed to use gas anymore. And it's a really serious uh, greenhouse gas because it's called natural gas, people tend not to realize. But that's a growing movement across North America. And I think in Canada, if we just do those two things, we do energy retrofits on all of our buildings, apartments, and commercial. Um, and secondly, we end the use of natural gas for, uh, for uh, heating um, in buildings. We would make massive progress really quickly. Um, now, you know, the transportation changes matter and there's a way longer conversation, but to, to move quickly now, you need to build on what you can do and do it everywhere. And those are things we could do everywhere across this country and really drop the amount of fossil fuels we burn just for our basic existence very, very quickly. And a major retrofit program wouldn't be without cost, but if the federal government can find $30 billion to buy and then twin uh, pipeline and see that balloon out of control, surely we can find a significant sum of money for retrofits. I actually think there there has been money. I don't, I don't want to do an entire disservice here. There, there has been money on the retrofit side and there's and there's more money through the infrastructure bank and, and all that. But it's it pales in comparison to to the scale of the challenge all across the, the country. And, and, and I completely agree with you on the opportunity. Thanks for the time. I, 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 I've, you know, I'm sure we could talk for the rest of the afternoon, but I, uh, I appreciate you, the time. You, you have a job to do. It's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. it's a pleasure to talk to you. Keep up uh, the good work and the good advocacy. It really matters. And, you know, 
Well, I really believe in our ability to collectively make a difference through the people we elect, and, and you're a great example. So thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, I appreciate, uh, and I, I also appreciate that sense of of looking forward because I, I did, I, I did genuinely when I was looking at everyone in the kitchen sink joining the the mayoral race, I thought, well, is David Miller not going to run? Because there's a guy who could actually win this race and we wouldn't be stuck with Mark Saunders. But but anyway, it's uh, I, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the service and, and I hope we can stay in touch. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I have a strong personal bias towards new voices in leadership positions at the moment, so I will take confirmation of that bias from David Miller. You can find me on social media at BEYNate. If you have ideas for topics or future guests, you can always email us, info at BEYNate.ca. We are going to continue to talk about politics at the federal level, provincial level, municipal level, and I hope we will continue to have a really cross-party opportunity for discussion, including the one today where I got asked some questions for a change, which was nice. And otherwise, until next time.